Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast. I'm Maggie Basca. And I'm Lily Howlett. School is back in session and we're heading to the job board to see what graduates really know about the people profession. With employment still at a record high, employers are desperate to recruit the best talent they can into their businesses. And this is just as true of HR departments. But do graduates and job seekers know what goes into choosing HR as a career? And how can businesses recruit the best talent for a profession which is widely misunderstood by those outside the workforce? This month, we talk about how the people profession has evolved in the past few years and how we get the best talent into HR jobs with career portfolioist Guy Pink and Yvonne Smythe, director of the Hayes Human Resources Recruitment Business. And it's time to grab the nearest skull and brush up on your favourite Elizabethan monologue and step into the spotlight. We're discussing how drama and acting skills can help business people conquer stage fright with Richard Keith from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Plus, Tim Pointer is back to help another listener in Tim's Pointers. All that and more to come. They do generally quite a lot of different things they can cover for people's like yeah understanding people's payroll how the company works explaining like new tax laws to the rest of the company and just generally helping the company out to understand new rules and just being able to generally run the company Uh, getting the best profile Mm. to fit into the particular role which the business is asked for I know you have to have within the UK you have to do like a certain qualification to become a to become like a HR manager so not everyone can just come HR you have to actually be trained up Those are real job seekers at the Reading Job Fair I chatted to graduates and others at the fair to see if they considered HR as a career what they thought HR actually did and how they might get into the people profession The answers varied from those who thought HR dealt solely with complaints or payroll to those with a deeper understanding of the nuances of HR qualifications and strategy. On the whole, though, we know most people who haven't actually dealt with HR directly lack an understanding of its career potential. So this begs the question, how can HR compete for talent and does it need to do a better job at marketing itself? We're joined by portfolio careerist Guy Pink and Yvonne Smythe, director of Hayes Human Resources Recruitment Business. So yeah, thank you both for joining us. Hello. Hello. The general consensus at the job fair that I attended was that many graduates knew about the concept of human resources. So they know that you went and complained to someone or that they might have done something kind of with onboarding, like, oh, I got a packet from HR or payroll, just kind of generically they're involved somewhere. But they're really confused about how HR functions within a business because we know that HR can be very expansive as a profession. Does this kind of ring true with what you've experienced? And do many people still kind of fall into the profession? And does that matter? I would guess that the majority fall into HR. Uh, Mm. I have yet to meet too many people that sort of see this as a a real career until they're actually in Mm. HR. I think as well, there are a number of excellent HR departments and functions One only has to pick up uh, people management and look at the awards uh, Mm. and those organisations that are putting themselves out there to see some of the excellent work that is being driven by very competent, professional and switched on HR departments that are supporting the business to deliver. There are some good HR departments who are making a difference in their organisations. Perhaps a little under the radar, you won't necessarily see their name sort of in lights but they're doing a a very functional piece of work unfortunately there are 
a number of very poor HR departments. We can often see that in the press. In fact, only today there was an NHS department that has taken action that has resulted in a significant payout to uh, a member of staff. And unfortunately, I think there are also some shocking HR departments out there, staffed by some individuals who uh, give HR the, the bad name that often is associated with the terminology. Mm. So when you actually explain where you work, there's uh, can be a sort of a smattering of laughter. Oh, you work in HR, do you? Our, our organisation's just dreadful. Uh, and so we have <laughs> that as a position that we've got to overcome in order to really begin to then sell the fact that actually a career in HR is a fabulous thing to be able to do. Human resources is a term which is widely referenced when we look into the world of work in our work as recruiters. And it reflects the increasing importance and value we attach to the people within an organisation, i.e. its human resources. We see references to an analysis of the makeup, skills, attitudes and performance of a workforce across the press, business reports, academic study modules. So whilst there may be some confusion about what HR professionals actually do when they're in an organisation, the fact that the function exists and is a core pillar within the world of work is understood. When we're thinking about businesses recruiting for HR candidates, uh, especially those at entry level, what is it that they're looking for? I mean, is it about having a certain degree or job history or CIPD qualifications? Or is it a case that transferable skills from other professions are equally important for recruiters? When I was recruiting uh, HR professionals for HR departments that I was heading up, I was looking probably at two different levels. For your HR officer, business partner, I wanted individuals that had a good track record of success uh, and experience at the level that, as an organisation, we were wanting. Mm, yeah. And so we were after people that actually had experience within the function. For more entry-level roles, probably more junior, for me having had an HR background was not necessarily key. What was more of a, a factor was their capacity to be able to engage with the culture of the organisation to get a sense of, of what as a directorate and department we were wanting to achieve and try and change and to come in with some very good transferable skills. For me, that was the sort of key element of recruitment. HR officer, business partner, experience and, and probably qualifications, mm. um, entry-level roles, it didn't really matter. I would agree with Guy. I think it's a combination of technical qualifications, practical experience and demonstrable track record, particularly if you're more experienced. But soft skills are really important for mm. a people mm. professional. The ability to learn, problem-solving and communication are top of the soft skills that we see are in demand by HR employers. A very experienced colleague of mine mentioned that she felt that one of the most valuable skills an HR professional could bring to their role was the ability to stand back and objectively assess a situation. Additional skills are also sought which reflect the changing world of work in which we live. Advances in technology mean that many basic routine and administrative tasks are being automated and in turn, there is an increased focus on value-added skills. The findings from the Hayes What Workers Want report in 2019, which looked at the impact of digital transformation and automation on workers, found that HR employers have significant interest in having HR professionals with software skills, change management and data analytics. 
to ensure that their investment in automation is a successful one, both now and in the future. And I guess that kind of also begs the question, just kind of going off that, where we're seeing the demand for soft skills increase. And I think that's one of the things that, especially when you look at management roles in HR and maybe those business partner roles where they're really going to be the head of something, that we're looking for someone who not only has those analytical skills, but also soft skills. Is that something that you would be also looking for? And kind of how do you show that? Because you might not be able to put that on a CV saying, I have great management skills, because what does that even mean? I'm never particularly comfortable with the term soft skills, because actually I think it's such a core part of what the HR function is Mm. about, that capacity to listen uh, to have a non-judgmental approach, to have a sympathetic ear, but to be able to be quite tough and to take some very tough decisions that mm. often organisations place upon the HR function to implement and, and see through. But I'd, I'd agree as well with Yvonne that I think that analytical skill set is now a really core part of what the HR function is moving into, that it's no longer just providing a whole raft of information, but it's using that information in a a manner that actually gives the organisation real analytical information to be able to plan and, and progress for the future. One of the other things that I thought when I was at the job fair is that plenty of job seekers might lack an understanding of other functions like uh, marketing or procurement. So it's not just a HR problem, it's kind of more of a general lack of awareness of particularly what a role is within a certain concept or a certain part of business. But do you think that HR does a good enough job of marketing itself and what more could be done? Because we all know it exists, but maybe don't know actually what it does. In a word, no. Um, (laughs) And let me qualify that. I think from my experience, certainly having worked within HR functions, having led HR functions, having led an organisation and now being on the other side and providing lectures and support to the next generation of HR professionals. I think the key thing that tends to be missing from the HR armoury or locker is that capacity to understand what the business of the organisation is about, that curiosity to ask why we're doing this, what is this about, in a way that actually gives that much greater understanding. So if you are an HR business partner and you are not getting out to the people that you are supporting and understanding your business, then how are you to provide the level of professionalism and support that's necessary? So I think HR lets itself down in many ways by not having that curiosity and support into it to businesses. But conversely, I also think it's not very good at marketing when it does do well mm. what it is doing within the business. So from my own experience, I'll give, give you one example. We created a, a, a learning and development strategy that got the buy-in from the executive and from our, our board of trustees. Then I went back and said, this is the strategy you want. This is the resource I need to deliver on that. We got the funding to do so. We managed to deliver it. We managed to, to deliver to, to a high level. At that point, we then started looking externally to see how we compared with other organizations and we started putting ourselves up for awards and we then were able to explain in the organization as well as externally what we were doing and how we were able to demonstrate excellence and levels of success but we were one of few organizations that actually felt the need to be able to do so and I think many 
good and perhaps excellent HR departments and functions are really not marketing what they're doing and demonstrating the success that they're providing within their own organizations. And Yvonne, what kind of has been your experience of HR kind of marketing itself? Because I imagine as a recruiter, that's one of the things that you have to look at externally of how do you get people attracted to a business. So referencing our earlier comment about it tends to be a profession that individuals still fall into just to some degree. There is certainly more work to be done in branding the profession in a much more strong way. And I think one of the ways of doing that is to really focus on the positive impact on business performance that comes from an effective and successful HR strategy and its linked policies, processes and behaviours. At an individual level, this can result in increased effort, collaboration, innovation, loyalty, all of which in turn lead to a significant uplift in business performance. Now, all of this obviously makes logical sense when we think about it, but sometimes from a branding perspective, the dots are not joined up to show the crucial interplay between HR professionals working closely and successfully with a business to achieve its goals. I think we, everyone in this room and all of our listeners know that HR does an increasingly important strategic job inside businesses. But in popular culture, it is often the, the butt of jokes. You know, it's portrayed as you, you fun police. Does that frustrate you? And, and does it hinder our attempts to, to get the best talent? I would say that one of the most common responses from those who are looking inside from the outside is that HR is seen, still seen as very generalist. Mm. It's about professionalising what the work that the HR professionals do and the impact that it has. Possibly thoughts are that generalists deal with employment and legal problems, payroll, administration, things we spoke about earlier that tend to get wrapped into personnel. But actually, I think there are two aspects which generally could be focused on a lot more. The first one is actually the extent of deep expertise and specialisation within the profession and in some organisations. So we have learning and development specialists, compensation and benefit specialists, talent sourcing, diversity and inclusion. The second element is the positive impact on business performance, which comes from an effective and successful HR strategy and everything that it does in order to deliver that. For me, I think it's all about culture. There are many organisations, and I hear this from my own students, who are working in cultures where the leadership or leadership teams see very little benefit or relevance for the HR function. So they're fighting an uphill battle in many ways. So the question is, how do they turn that round? Well, they turn it round by being able to demonstrate that they are adding value into that organisation and being very clear what the business strategy is, of working very closely with the uh, finance departments, who often do have the ear of the chief executive, and being able to show that the investment that the organisation is giving to the HR function is being returned. So, for example, I always want my students to be able to tell me what the uh, numbers of staff that they're employing, what their levels of turnover are, are at, what the sickness absence, but you'd be surprised how many individuals in HR functions don't know the very basic information like that. And I think as well, you started talking about recruitment fairs and recruitment's a key part of the HR armory. If HR functions don't get recruitment right in their organisation, 
they really cannot do any of the other added value elements, such as well-being strategies or employee engagement, if they can't get the very fundamental basics right of getting the right person in at the right time on the right pay to the organisation when, when it's required. And if, if, if they're not meeting those minimum standards, then one would question what value they are adding into their organisation. Are they a blocker or an enabler? Just really coming back on Guy's point about culture, I think this is absolutely essential. An HR professional, someone working really effectively with a leadership team, can take the temperature of the organisation mm. and can help enable a more inclusive culture and an environment where everybody feels that they have the ability to bring their whole self to work, contribute in a way that is respected and heard and valued. And in doing that, they can achieve their full potential, whatever that potential is. So I think it's a hugely powerful role. It's both an opportunity and a responsibility for HR professionals to really seize with both hands. Finally, what is the elevator pitch for why someone should be should have a career in HR over other professions? Because, Guy, you mentioned that you talk to students, but even then, people who are just entering the workforce are really just kind of looking for a job because we're at peak employment right now, so they just kind of want something. What is the best way that you found in kind of like the shortest amount of time, and I know it can be very expansive, to really say this is why HR is a really great career and you should consider it. I would say that the elevator pitch is that HR makes a real and sustained difference to your organisation by understanding the business, supporting and guiding managers to lead and develop their people. But in order to do this, you need to like and be interested in organisations and people, have exceptionally good emotional intelligence and above all great resilience. It can be tough, but it's an incredibly rewarding career. So I've got three elements to my elevator pitch. Um, the first one is reflecting just what Guy said, actually. It is a really rewarding career on several levels. It's hugely rewarding on a personal basis to play an active role in helping and helping shape and support the careers of employees and the performance of a business. The financial rewards for an HR professional are also very attractive. Variety and change. The HR profession is an industry that is always changing due to new legislation, technology and employee trends and expectations. This presents new opportunities, challenges and a variety that is truly unique and it will keep you engaged and interested. And finally, relevance and breadth. An effective HR function sits at the heart of an organisation and its unique reach across all levels and functions within an organisation makes the work that you do hugely relevant. I'm at the end of my HR career looking back uh, often get asked what got you into HR in the first mm. case and I always said it was legalised nosiness <laughs> you get to root around within an organisation and people pay you to do it what's not to like and on that note, I think that actually is probably the best way that I've heard of describing HR, because that's how I describe being a journalist, is I'm paid to be very curious and ask people very intrusive questions, which is very true also, I think, of HR. So thank you guys both for joining us. I really do appreciate the time, and I hope that more people hear this and really kind of reflect on their own careers and even just passing that on to the next generation. To be or not to be, that is the question.
whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. They say that all the world's a stage, and all the men and women are merely players, especially in business. The skills required to communicate a dramatic monologue in front of thousands are the same as prepping for an important presentation in front of stakeholders. And now, thespians and drama schools across the country are utilising their unique skill sets to train business leaders on how to bring authenticity and authority into the workplace. This specialist knowledge of theatre is transferable to helping HR and other professionals with public speaking, interview skills and even storytelling in the business community. Joining us today is Richard Heath, voice and communication coach from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama to discuss how actor training and business training can help individuals in the workplace. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So I guess every kid has that dream of being an actor, whether they want to be like Ian McKellen or they want to be like Olivia Colman. And we kind of all go through pantos and plays in school at some point in time. But how can actor training help business leaders and HR professionals as adults grow and develop in the workplace? There's two ways, really. The first one, the most obvious, is with communication skills. So helping people to communicate, whether it's formally with a presentation or a pitch or informally, just communicating with colleagues, friends in the workplace, helping them communicate with more clarity, more authenticity, and when necessary, more persuasion. The other related area is that there's a growing body of research showing us that actor training, indeed all arts education, is a very useful way of developing creativity. And that is a brilliant skill for business leaders to have in terms of innovating, in terms of problem solving, which my clients often tell me is pretty much all they have to do is to solve problems and communicate on a daily basis. What kind of exercises or, or training techniques do you utilise? Is it, is it about performing a dramatic monologue and, and using that to prep for, for corporate presentations? No, it's not really. There are elements of that which are very useful. If we unpack that, if, you were, if I'm coaching somebody in the theatre to perform a dramatic monologue, say Hamlet, for instance, then I'm helping them understand the character of Hamlet, the backstory, mm. along with the emotional content of the speech, as well as is the actor engaging with the words on the script and mm. being able to deliver mm. them in a way that's going to resonate with an audience, understanding what that person on the stage is trying to do to somebody else on the stage, i.e. what do they want that person to think or feel or do. So the first part of that is irrelevant to business communication. You don't need to worry about a character. You don't need to worry about somebody else's world. But what you do need to think about is how are my words going to affect somebody else? Mm. Am I engaging with them enough in order to influence, in order to persuade? Do I really know what I want my audience to think or feel or do? And all of that is very relevant. And we have a variety of techniques that we use to help develop those skills. But it's, I could probably say, I don't think I've ever asked a client to use a dramatic monologue for that purpose. (laughs) I mean, so could could you quickly do one on air to, to help listeners out that might have a big meeting? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we do a lot is breathing. Because contrary to how we all think, we don't breathe effectively in daily life. I know that from running. <laughs> I am out of breath all the time. People say this to me. I had a client who, who looked slightly disconcerted when I mentioned we were going to do some breathing. He said, Richard, I have been breathing since I was born. I'm pretty sure I know how to do it, which we all instinctively think we can do, right? But deep breathing, the ability to connect the breath 
to maximize the impact of the voice, to maximize the feeling of strength, that relaxed strength, presence, the power to engage somebody else is essential. Mm. So if you've got your sat down the way we are, your feet flat on the floor, sitting up straight without putting yourself in any sort of uh, tense position. So imagine you've got a string pulling you up from the top of your head, okay. energy through the spine, that. and just starting to drop the breath right down into the bottom of the lungs. So engaging the diaphragm, which is this sheet of muscle just below the ribs here, if you need to find it, if you pant very gently. Ooh, this was the yeah. wrong day That's to wear high-waisted trousers. <laughs> that muscle just there, and engaging the bottom of the ribs. And we'd have a lot more time and space to do this if we were running yeah. a course, but course. just drop the breath right down to the bottom of the lungs. Let the ribs expand out to the side, front and back, but get no movement in the shoulders. And at the same time, if you just imagine all the things that you've got concerns about consciously, so whether that be something as simple as my mortgage or Brexit or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. I like how you listed mortgage and Brexit as simple. <laughs> simple things. Because but, I was sitting there going, simple, what am I going to eat for lunch? Yeah, well, these concerns are things that you could put down on one Okay, wallet, okay, okay. And you can write them down on a page and mentally imagine writing down those four, five, six things that you're concerned about. And then when you're ready, just... Pick up each piece of paper in your mind, scrumple it up into a ball, and on the out-breath, just toss it behind you. Oh. Every time you breathe out, release one of those things that's consciously causing you concern. And you would have to do this for as many things that you've got written down. Mm. It can take quite a long time, but in doing so, you then end up with a blank slate. You're far more relaxed physically because the breath has been dropped. You're centred. And you can now position your mind to say, all right, what's the first sentence of my presentation? Mm. What's the key point that I want to get across here? And that combination of physically engaging breath in a different way and mentally trying to clear the mind of all the subconscious stuff that gets in the way of you being an effective communicator is a really useful way to start a presentation or a pitch or an important piece of communication. Obviously, drama is all about storytelling and businesses are really focusing on how to get their stories out authentically because a lot of people want that authenticity presented to not only employees, but also to the public kind of sharing themselves. Why is it important for business leaders to be able to communicate this level of authenticity to employees? And how does drama help facilitate that? The first part of your question, why is it important? Because so much of effective communication is built on trust. Mm -hmm. Your ability to create a bond of trust with somebody, that's going to help you form a real connection. And therefore, once you have a connection, maximize the chance of your ability to connect with that person in a way that influences them, that mm -hmm. encourages them to do something, to take a particular course of action, whatever it might be that you are trying to communicate. So the believing in me that I am out for all of us, not just out for my own purposes, is essential in that authenticity. How does drama training help? Well, as I said, it's absolutely essential to understand this is not about playing a part or a role. It's about taking the skills that you use when you're training in the theatre to develop your own authenticity. And contrary to popular belief, everything in the theatre is about truth. It's about finding the truth of a circumstance. If it wasn't, that's bad acting. Every time you see bad acting, you go, I don't believe, I don't believe it. Mm. Well, why would a drama school train people to do that? They don't. Everything we do is about finding the truth in how you communicate, whether that's what you say and how you say it. So the voice and the visual communication, how you communicate with your body. 
It's fundamental to everything we do. The authenticity is essential to that individual. And therefore, once the individual has it, the story that's being told for the firm, for the diversity, inclusion, whatever it might be, can come across. I guess that kind of leads me on to to my question about personal confidence. I mean, how much personal confidence do you need to take on this training? And could it be that, say, if I was really introverted, would you be able to make me an extrovert or make me appear more confident through this training? You don't need a huge amount of personal confidence to do it. But we get people with all ranges of confidence. So if you're not particularly confident, then our job is to develop your skills to help you become more confident, maintaining that authenticity. <laughs> if you are confident, then our job is to keep you confident and make you better at the things that you have areas to develop because mm. we can all get better. So you don't need to be particularly confident to do it. We can help you with that. Absolutely. It's not about making introverts extroverts. It's not about changing personalities. It's about saying, how do you change your behavior in this circumstance? So we all have a self that we like, that we believe is authentic, but we behave differently in different circumstances. Mm. So if you're interviewing for a job, you're behaving differently to when you're out with friends on a Friday night. Yeah. And you probably, well, I hope you behave differently. I suppose it depends, yeah. what, <laughs> depends what job you're applying for. But, but the, the point is, you can help people understand what behaviours are really going to really gonna help them communicate effectively in terms of using their voice, in terms of using their body language, in terms of how they communicate, even if they feel they are introverted, without having to change them into what they perceive as an extrovert. So there's nothing to worry about from that front. You mm. still can be you. Is there an argument about being able to tell stories and project yourself that actually could make you less authentic because you're playing that role rather than yourself? Because I think that, especially uh, for me, when I used to work in retail, a lot of people would say, we have retail face, which is we're really extroverted and we're able to go up to people and talk to people. But then the actual person who's behind that kind of business self is very introverted and is like, I actually hate people. I can't be in this job. Is that something that you kind of have to confront through the training of saying you can't have that dual personality of here's my employee business self, but then here's my authenticness? That's something that we actually help people with, mm. certainly. It's to say the times when you feel I'm having to play a part, can we strip that away? Can we find the authenticity and keep that in whatever circumstance you're actually communicating? You mentioned story, for instance, the telling of the story. This is something that people are quite concerned about. Mm. They seem to confuse story with something that is inherently made up or, or indeed is something that is childish, which is just not true. We tell stories all the time as grown-ups. How often do we come home from work and say, oh my God, you'll never guess what so-and-so did today in the office. Or, and we're into a story. All the time. Or we read a newspaper and we're reading stories. Stories are a really effective way of communicating things. And that's not to say they can't deal in the facts and the figures and the truth, the reality of what's going on. They're just a wonderful package because they can engage emotionally. And we know from how the brain works that people receive stories effectively, helping them embed in people's minds. So I don't think there's a risk of that happening. I People mm. becoming inauthentic when they learn to tell stories, unless they are genuinely inauthentic people who want to deliberately to mislead. And that's something completely different. Most people in business don't. They're out to really, to really communicate effectively. And they know the authenticity is key for that. So how do you find that authenticity in a format like a story? It's something that we, can, we spend a lot of time helping people awesome. with.
Uh, I think that is really interesting because a lot of people do have that dream of being an actor, whether they're Olivia Colman or even like me, want to be Emma Watson, because, you know, that's just kind of my age demographic. But I think that's something interesting that Central is really kind of focusing on is the authenticity and business training. And I really want to thank you. And this is going to be a great highlight of not only Central skills and your skills, but also kind of looking at L&D and training kind of outside of the traditional business aspect. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Thank you. And now it's time for the man who is so smart with human resources, you'd think he went to HRVD. It's Tim Pointer. So, Tim, I've got a question for you. One of my HR colleagues has got into a relationship with one of our managers. He's married and she's single. They've been discreet about it and she's given me a heads up about what's happening so that I can handle any issues that arise with his team rather than her to avoid any conflict of interest. I don't have any moral objection to what they're doing, but I do think it's unprofessional. Um, When it goes wrong, which it will, there will inevitably be messy fallout, which will affect me and the rest of the HR team. Should I talk to her about what's happening and how should I do so? Okay, so listen, everybody on the podcast right now is going, they're nodding furiously on their commutes going, (laughs) yeah. I I feel like Mm -hmm. everybody sits there and goes, this is a really difficult thing that everybody would go, no red flags, red flags. But a lot of offices will actually have that policy saying, "As, as long as you fit within a certain parameter with your relationship it's okay to have an office relationship. But it is really interesting of saying, how do you have that approach to talk to the people one-to-one to say something is going to happen and it will not only affect your relationship, but the team and possibly the business as a wider kind of result because as professional as you want to be, this is a thing that does affect other people. I completely agree. There are several very interesting statements within here. One is that uh, they've been very discreet about it. Yeah, I don't care how discreet people are. This will always, always get out. (laughs) So getting on the front foot in terms of, you know, how are we going to manage this is really important. Firstly, the question ends with, should I talk to her about what's happening and how should I do so? Mm. Mm. I definitely wouldn't be going in alone on this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be having a <laughs> having a conversation with, you know, a mentor, your coach, your senior manager, whomever it is in the building, and just talking through. Okay, this is the situation. Ah, let's talk through the best way of managing this. Yes, there absolutely might be a relationship at work policy. Some organisations will, mm. some won't. But it's absolutely about how we make sure that, from a governance point of view, we manage this appropriately, um, because there'll be crossover in terms of uh, HR advice be- being given to that particular manager, how you're going to manage salary review, how you're going to manage bonus allocation, how you're going to manage succession planning, all of these pieces bubble up mm-hmm. because it is the perception of fairness. The perception of fairness is so critical. As human beings, we're incredibly keyed into what's fair, who sits at which desk, exactly. who gets <laughs> who gets ask, access to the biscuits first, <laughs> all of these really important things. That is a really important thing, I have to say. Amplify that to the 10th, right, in terms of the perception that so-and-so's got a promotion, a bonus, a salary review, a nice shiny company car, whatever it is, doesn't matter whether it's factual or not there will be a perception they've got that because of this relationship Mm. so we have to get ahead of that and talk through these things and work out how it's going to be managed so that as this becomes more public information we can say actually 
that individual and their team division, whatever it is, are being managed by this business partner over here, not that one. And then I guess one of the other things that a lot of HR people listening are going to sit there and go, oh man, I would never do that because I feel like HR is held to uh, an almost higher standard kind of within businesses because it is the in-between of the employee and the employer. And they have to have fairness because that's part of the profession. And that does bring up the point of how do you stay objective if you are in a personal relationship, whether it is a a romantic relationship or even a familial relationship of if suddenly one of your managers happens to be your father or your sister or your cousin, kind of how do you mitigate that perspective of saying you need to get on that, but also you need to acknowledge that other people are going to sit there and go, I know there's a connection there. And how to be authentic. So the first thing, you completely agree, HR are held to the rules. Of course we are. We are seen as being the holders of the rules. Mm. You know, I absolutely detest the expression HR policies, right? Mm. Yeah. They're not HR policies. They are company policies. However, we are so often developing the policies with the business and put, communicating them, putting, in, putting them into practice, being part of their training, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not HRs. However, because we do all of that development and communication and training and all the rest of it, then we are expected to play by the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're perceived to be the referee, then, you know, people are going to be showing you a red card if you don't follow the laws of the game. So absolutely, we've got to be very careful about how this is laid out. Get ahead of it. Bring a couple more people into the conversation so that you're prepared to go in there because it is where angels fear to tread once you go into people's private lives. Mm. But you have to think about the perceptions of fairness, the perceptions of all the company policies and procedures, and how you're going to manage your way through all of those. I think the interesting thing with this problem is that it's not just an office relationship. The the guy's married. Is there anything there that that she could sort of mitigate in the meantime with you know, when people do eventually find out. That's, for me, is a very interesting line because everything I've talked about is very much about the company in terms mm. of the company policies, procedures, operations. Yeah. There's then that additional personal point which some people might choose to bring into might choose to bring into the conversation because of as our correspondent talks about, their ethics doesn't have an issue with so, you know, as as she or he says, yeah. I, I don't have any moral objection. But others may then bring that point forward. Mm. The company shouldn't have a position on this. You know, there has to be an absolutely clear position between someone's personal life and someone's professional life. And Mm. we're focused on the professional life and the rest of it is outside. I think I think that does bring up the point where a lot of people will kind of have this thing where they say, oh, it's my work wife or my work husband, where they develop a, a bit closer of a relationship with one of their colleagues, maybe not to the level of having a romantic relationship with them, but saying, like, we have a special bond because, you know, we sit here and chat and maybe occasionally do, like, what could be considered harmless flirting or something like that. Kind of what should be the line of when other people see it and they sit there and go, well, I know X is married. How is that conversation kind of going to be reflected back of, well, you know, it can be harmless in this case, maybe it's gotten a bit further than that. But for other people listening could sit there and go, oh, well, I've been doing something not to this level, but sort of similar of I have a work wife or husband and uh, are other people looking at me going, I wonder? 
It's fascinating, isn't it? Because if you go to um, one of the many engagement studies out there, the uh, Gallup Q12, one of the questions is, do you have a best friend at work? Mm. And the very interesting correlation between having a best friend at work and having a high engagement to the organisation that you work in, because you bring your whole self to work, right? Mm. And therefore you're more comfortable, you can you know, really bring all the skills from outside, inside. So on the one hand, we want people to have close relationships, nay, friendships at work. We mm. know this is really important in terms of their productivity and therefore the overall, uh, overall performance of the business. Mm. And we're not there to be in moral judgment in terms of the way that people conduct their relationships. What we do have to be aware of is that overarching sense of fairness and impartiality, particularly when that crosses over into the HR team. Alrighty, and that's all that for this HR podcast. I am really curious about how many other people who are listening to us kind of fell into HR as a career and consider themselves the fun police. I'm really curious how many of us uh, got something out of that deep breathing exercise. I did. I, <laughs> I realised that I cannot sit up straight to save my life. If anyone had IR35 on their list of worries, by the way, um, give us a tweet and let us know. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Thanks to all our guests, Guy Pink, Yvonne Smythe, Richard Keith, and of course, Tim Pointer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Keep up to date on all things HR and that HR podcast on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to see your comments. My name is Maggie Baska. And I'm Lily Howlett. And the producer for this episode was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. And we'll see you next month. Bye. 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 bye, bye. bye.